This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we take our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, and we put them on the examination table and we look at them through the lens of disability. We'll be looking at characters that represent the disability experience, and we'll also be looking at films that have themes that resonate for those of us with disabilities. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm so thrilled to have you here with me. And y'all, I am thrilled about today's episode. We are taking a bit of a road trip. We are going to be going to Camp Crystal Lake in New Jersey and heading on down to Texas to talk Jason Voorhees on Friday the 13th and Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does that have to do with disability? Well, both Jason and Leatherface happen to be characters with disabilities uh, in the canon of their franchises. So, I'm super excited to dig into these two classic franchises and these two iconic characters. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Let's get our road trip, well on the road and let's make our first stop at Camp Crystal Lake where we are going to chat about Jason Voorhees and we're going to chat about Friday the 13th. But before we can get to the nitty gritty uh, disability goodness uh, of Jason and of this franchise, we need to set the scene. We need to get some context of the character of the world we are entering. So to help us do that, uh, I'm going to give a little plot synopsis of the first Friday the 13th. Now, like I said, the reason to do this is to kind of get the the lay of the land, so to speak. Um, We are introduced to the character of Jason, although we don't uh, really spend time with him. And we get a sense of Camp Crystal Lake in the background. So it's a good place to start. Now, I'm going to give you a peek behind a podcast newbie's uh, curtain, so to speak. This is actually the second time I'm recording this. Uh, The first time I recorded it, I thought it sounded all right. went on with my day and when I was going back and doing a re-listen I noticed I said that Friday the 13th takes place in the 70s when in fact it takes place in 1980 so I thought yeah I need to go back and and re-record that don't I so here we are and um you know, 
I think it's it's only fitting that I would do that today, which today I don't know when you're going to be listening. Uh, by the way, sweet just sweet gentle listener, but today is actually Friday the thirteenth, so I am hoping that uh, you know the good the good positive vibes of the day will keep me uh, from committing uh, any similar sins. To kind of further assist me on that is, you know, I'm going to do what the professionals do. I'm going to do what the greats uh, and the greats before me have done. And that's go to the web and get a damn plot breakdown. And the source I'm using is Wikipedia because you know and I know Wikipedia has never steered a person wrong with inaccuracies before. So, all of that uh, out of the way and out of the bag, let's get into the plot of 1980s, Friday the 13th. In 1958 at Camp Crystal Lake, counselors Barry and Claudette sneak inside a storage cabin to have sex where an unseen assailant murders them. 22 years later, I'm taking that a little personal there from Wikipedia. Uh, Camp counselor Annie is driven halfway to the reopened Camp Crystal Lake by Enos, a truck driver, despite having been warned by Crazy Ralph. That camp's got a death curse. (laughs) While driving, Enos warns Annie about the camp's troubled past, which involved a young boy drowning in Crystal Lake in 1957. After being dropped off, she hitches another ride from an unseen person who chases her into the woods and slashes her throat. At the camp, counselors Ned, Jack, Bill, Marcy, Brenda, and Alice, along with owner Steve, refurbish the cabins and facilities. As a thunderstorm approaches, Steve leaves the campground to stock supplies. Ned sees someone walk into a cabin and follows. While Jack and Marcy have sex in one of the cabin's bunk beds, they are unaware of Ned's body above them, his throat having been slit. When Marcy leaves to use the bathroom, Jack's throat is pierced with an arrow from beneath the bed. The killer follows Marcy into the bathrooms and slams an axe into her face. Brenda hears a voice calling for help and ventures outside to the archery range where the lights turn on. Later, Steve returns and recognizes the unseen killer who stabs him. Worried by their friends' disappearances, Alice and Bill leave the main cabin to investigate. They find an axe in Brenda's bed, the phones disconnected, and Ned's truck inoperable. When the power goes out, Bill goes to check on the generator. Alice heads out to look for him and finds his body pinned with arrows to the generator room's door. She flees to the main cabin to hide, only to be traumatized further when Brenda's body is thrown through the window. Soon after, Alice sees a vehicle pull up and rushes outside, thinking it's Steve. Instead, she is greeted by Mrs. Voorhees, a middle-aged woman who claims to be an old friend 
of Steve and his family. She reveals that her son, Jason, was the young boy who drowned in 1957, blaming his death on the counselors who were supposed to be watching him, but were having sex instead. Revealing herself as a killer, she attempts to kill Alice, but Alice knocks her unconscious. At the shore, she tries to kill her again with a machete, but Alice gains the advantage and decapitates her. Exhausted, Alice boards and falls asleep inside a canoe which floats out on Crystal Lake. Suddenly, Jason's decomposing corpse attacks her, at which point she awakens in the hospital, surrounded by a police sergeant and medical staff who are attending to her. When Alice asks about Jason, the sergeant says there was no sign of any boy. She says, Then he's still out there, as the lake is shown at peace. And there you go. That is the rundown of Friday the 13th. So let's get into the discussion about disability. Uh, and the place to start is with Pamela Voorhees and uh, her monologue uh, there to Alice at the very end. It's where we get kind of the origins of Jason. We learn some really important details here that I want to uh, talk about. The first one being that uh, Mrs. Voorhees worked at the camp at the time that Jason drowned. And so that's, I think, kind of an important thing to keep in mind. That she was working at the summer camp at the time. Uh, we also... Uh, during her little speech here, she does an interesting, interesting thing. As she's talking about Jason specifically, she goes to call him special and then stops herself kind of mid-word uh, and then changes route and says that, you know, he, he was a bad swimmer. There's a couple of reasons why, the, why this is of particular, I think, importance here. A, it gives us the kind of uh, context that we need to identify Jason as an individual with a disability. That uh, little bit right there, kind of uh, in conjunction with the overall story of Jason, and, you know, she mentions that Jason needed... Uh, some extra supervision, we can uh, piece together the fact that uh, Jason probably had an intellectual or developmental disability and, uh, you know, needed to be supervised a little bit more uh, closely while swimming. So Mrs. Voorhees lays all of this out uh, in her speech and again, she mentions that she worked at the camp. So it's not necessarily clear if, uh, you know, Jason was there as a counselor, as not a counselor, as a camper on his own, or if it was a situation of, you know, Mrs. Voorhees just kind of bringing him with her to work. You know, we have to always keep in mind that this takes place uh, this story 
that she's telling takes place in 57. Um, and of course the film itself, the film proper takes place in 1980. Uh, you know, in either setting, uh, there's not going to be, uh, community supports or, uh, services really in place, uh, for individuals with disabilities. You know, there's not going to be, um, kind of specialized, uh, places that, uh, they may be able to go to, uh, allow parents to work. Um, you know, uh, at that time, kids aren't really, uh, kids with disabilities aren't really integrated into the school system the way that they are now with, um, you know, kind of those, uh, accommodations that can be put into place and IEPs. And, you know, we live in a post ADA world. So all of that, I think, is uh, probably a little bit uh, of an easier go for parents. Obviously not perfect. Um, as someone that works in that field, uh, absolutely it's not perfect. But, uh, you know, the ability for Mrs. Voorhees to find that support is probably very minimal. And, uh, you know, there's no mention of uh, another parent that would be around to help. So... You know, we connect all of those threads to paint a picture of Mrs. Voorhees as a single parent uh, caring for this child with some uh, significant health care needs and uh, doing the best she can and having this tragic event occur. So her uh, arriving at Camp Crystal Lake and murdering the counselors back in 58 um I believe that these are the the specific counselors that she's kind of uh, identifying as being the ones responsible for uh, Jason, Jason's drowning. And then, you know, when the camp closes down, all things are quiet. And then uh, upon the reopening, she's back to make sure that that reopening doesn't happen. So that's kind of where we are uh, at this point. And you know, we haven't met Jason yet. We've only seen him in that small little uh, moment with Alice on the water where young boy Jason's body uh, is coming out of the lake to grab her. So we don't meet Jason until part two. And surprise, Jason did not die in 1957 as believed. He, in fact, survived and has been living in the woods around Camp Crystal Lake. We are kind of led to see that uh, Jason perhaps saw his mother murdered at the end uh, of the uh, first film and now is on his own path of vengeance and, you know, is kind of taking over his mom's mission to make sure that Camp Crystal Lake does not open. So, uh, after he goes after Alice in kind of our opening, he then goes back to Camp Crystal Lake where, again, they're trying to reopen. And he's got himself a, a fresh crew of folks to slice and dice his way through. But the second film... Straight out of the gate is where we get, I think, one of the most dominant elements of disability within 
the Friday the 13th franchise uh, connected with Jason. And that is infantilization. Infantilization is uh, the act of treating someone or speaking to someone as though they are a child. Um, the reasoning behind it can uh, vary, but it's that approach to communication and action to someone. How this plays in this film is at the very end, our final girl, Jenny, uh, face to face with Jason, kind of gets to him, gets him to pause by taking on the persona of Mrs. Voorhees. She speaks to Jason as though she is his mom and speaks to him as though he is a child. So that's our first entry point. Uh, we see it again uh, in part four with Tommy Jarvis and uh, Tommy Jarvis uh, shaving his head uh, and kind of he's a young boy himself, uh, you know, in going against Jason, he shaves his head so that he can have the appearance of Jason and again is relating to Jason as though Jason is a child. Jason sees himself the way uh, that Tommy is presenting himself as a child like Jason. And so there is that element. We see it in uh, part uh, eight, Jason Takes Manhattan at the very, very end where we see young boy Jason uh, in the sewers after kind of the final battle and some toxic sludge is uh, released on him. And as he's, uh, you know, taken down, we see young boy Jason. Freddy versus Jason plays on this because that's really how Freddy is getting to Jason by going into his mind, speaking to him as though he is that young boy back at Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, you know, the opening sequence where uh, we see Jason, it's Freddy talking to Jason, just as Jenny did, as Mrs. Voorhees, presenting himself as Mrs. Voorhees and getting Jason to go and do the bidding because, you know, Jason likes to stay close to home. He likes to not veer out of Camp Crystal Lake unless absolutely necessary and it's only when, uh, you know, Mom, uh, Mrs. Voorhees, tells him to go and kill on Elm Street that he does so. And then throughout the film, again, we have uh, Freddy really uh, exploiting Jason's uh, supposed fear of water from his uh, drowning as a kid. And we have, uh, just like in Part 8, we have a couple of shots of Jason as a child as well. Um, yeah, so those are really kind of the high marks of where we see the uh, the infantilization of Jason come out. Now, how this plays into disability. Individuals, uh, particularly with intellectual developmental disabilities, encounter infantilization uh, on the regular, there's this idea of assumed uh, incompetence. And so, you know, 
parents uh, will uh, continue to kind of act towards and treat uh, their children uh, childlike, uh, despite them being older. Um, because, you know, they're, they're perhaps doing it out of sense of protection, but, you know, it really is not allowing uh, that child to grow. Uh, it kind of results in a, an element of arrested development. So we see that connect with Jason, like I said, pretty straight out of the gate in part two, and we see it uh, factor in uh, throughout the franchise. And there are probably a couple of other examples throughout the franchise too, but those are uh, the ones that really hit, I think, the hardest to me. Another element that I want to talk about specific to Jason as an individual with a disability is this uh, stereotype, uh, particularly of those uh, individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities having a lack of ability to uh, kind of rationally understand and deal with emotions, which then results into outbursts that can often be violent. Um, Jason, unlike, let's, I mean, obviously unlike uh, Freddy, because, I mean, Freddy does quite a bit of talking, but Freddy is very kind of methodical and, you know, really gets uh, deep with his victims and, you know, really plays around with their fears and gets into their mind. Jason is really kind of a, a cut him and leave him type type dude. You know, he doesn't have time for flair. Um, you know, there there are a couple of kills, I guess, that you can rack up as being a little uh, a little showy for Jason. But you know, he keeps it he keeps it moving. He keep, he keeps it quick. He keeps it brutal. And, you know, I think that all speaks to this idea of, you know, uh, how uh, individuals with disabilities may lack that ability to manage those types of emotions that can lead to outbursts. You know, and a non-horror example of this would be, you know, Lenny from Of Mice and Men. So it's that idea kind of encompassed in Jason. And yeah, it's problematic for sure. Um, but it's something that we see kind of throughout the story uh, of Jason, but we also see uh, in tons of other places as well. So for us to kind of put a pin in the conversation around Jason and disability, I want to take us back to Pamela. Voorhees in her story, you know, being uh, a parent, uh, having a child uh, die, and the grief and guilt that accompanies that. This story is kind of, or that kind of plot is essentially copy and pasted for Friday the 13th Part 5, uh, A New Beginning, where instead of Mrs. Voorhees, uh, and Jason, we have a paramedic, Roy, and we have uh, his son, Joey. So, uh, very, very 
a non-complete uh, synopsis of part five is that we um, are introduced again to Tommy Jarvis as a teen. Uh, of course, Tommy Jarvis is the young boy that I referenced before, the one that to take down Jason, you know, shaved his head and kind of presented himself as Jason, as young Jason to uh, kind of get through to our favorite hockey masked killer during battle. Uh, but in part five, uh, Tommy Jarvis is a teen. He goes to a halfway house of sorts uh, for youth with uh, mental health issues. And there we meet Joey, who I think in addition to possibly some other issues uh, is an overeater. Um, we also meet Vic, who I believe that's his name, uh, who is another, uh, person there, and he has, uh, some rage issues. Uh, Joey is, you know, perhaps being too aggressively helpful, uh, to some folks and, you know, goes to help, uh, Vic in chopping wood, uh, and Vic is not, uh, accepting of the help. Joey persists, and uh, Vic kills him with the axe. Paramedics show up and, uh, you know, take the body, and we uh, move along with our story there. But what what we discover at the end, as, uh, you know, it, more folks are dying, and it appears that Jason has come back, uh, Jason is actually uh, one of the paramedics, Broy, uh, and we discover that Joey, uh, the young man that died, was his son. Uh, they were estranged, but he was kind of keeping tabs on him and was so uh, grief-stricken and distraught by discovering uh, his son's uh, dead body that he goes on a killing spree. So, very similar to kind of the arc of Pamela Voorhees in... You know, I think as we look at it through a, a lens of disability, you know, I think it's important to know that that's something that comes back, um, like I said, in kind of a copy and paste way. Uh, I, I think that it's done with some intention there. So I think we're ready to pack up and head out of New Jersey. We've talked uh, through, I think, some of the important key points of the series and Jason. So let's get to our next stop, shall we? Our next stop on our road trip is, of course, Texas. We're heading down to Texas, and we are going to now talk about Leatherface, a.k.a. Thomas Hewitt and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I'm going to do things a little bit different for this film. I'm not actually going to be talking about the 1974 original film. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one being that uh, disability connected with Leatherface really isn't introduced or hit on in that film. Now, you can make a connect to that, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that probably towards the end here. But the connection to disability uh, for Leatherface really isn't explicit in the 1974 film and in its direct sequels. 
So that means our clearest path forward is to talk about the 2003 remake where disability is definitely introduced in part of uh, Leatherface's narrative. One of the other reasons that I don't want to necessarily talk about the 1974 film is because if I'm going to talk the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Disability, the more interesting conversation is around the love of my life, Franklin. And uh, I'm going to actually be kind of dedicating an entire episode to Franklin because you know I've got a take or 15 about him. Uh, So I'm excited about that. But that's kind of why I didn't want to really dig in deep to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, film. So I'm going to be talking about the 2003 remake. So let's get into it and let's get to that plot via Wikipedia. On August 18th, 1973, five young adults, Aaron, her brother Kemper, and their friends Morgan, Andy, and Pepper are on their way to a Leonard Skinner concert after traveling to Mexico to purchase marijuana. While driving through Texas, the group picks up a distraught and severely traumatized hitchhiker they see walking in the middle of the road. After they try to talk with the hitchhiker, who speaks incoherently about a bad man, she pulls a loaded revolver from between her legs and shoots herself in the mouth. The group goes to a nearby diner to contact the police, where a woman named Luda May tells them to meet Sheriff Hoyt at the mill. Instead, they find a young boy named Jedediah, who tells them that Sheriff Hoyt is at home getting drunk. Aaron and Camper go through the woods to find Sheriff Hoyt's home, leaving Morgan, Andy, and Pepper at the mill with Jedediah. When they come across a plantation house and Aaron is allowed inside by an amputee named Monty uh, to call her to call for help, Kemper goes inside to look for Aaron and is killed with a sledgehammer by Thomas Hewitt, also known as Leatherface, who drags his body into the basement to make a new mask. Meanwhile, Hoyt arrives at the mill and disposes of the hitchhiker's body. After Aaron discovers that Kemper is missing, she and Andy go back to Monty's house and Aaron distracts him while Andy searches for Kemper. When Monty realizes that Andy is inside, he summons Leatherface, who attacks him with a chainsaw. Aaron escapes and heads towards the woods, but Leatherface uh, severs Andy's leg and carries him into the basement where he is impaled on a meat hook. Aaron makes it back to the mill, but before she and the others can leave, Hoyt shows up. After finding marijuana on the dashboard, he orders Aaron and Pepper to get out of the van, gives Morgan the gun he took from the hitchhiker, and tells him to reenact how she killed herself. Morgan, disturbed by his demands, attempts to shoot him, but the gun is unloaded. Hoyt then handcuffs Morgan and drives him back to the Hewitt house, taking the van's key with him. Aaron and Pepper are tracked down by Leatherface, who is wearing Kemper's face as a mask, and when Pepper attempts to run, she is killed by Leatherface. Aaron runs and hides in a nearby trailer belonging to an obese middle-aged woman 
known only as the Tea Lady, Wikipedia, and a younger woman named Henrietta, who gives her tea uh, that has been drugged. Aaron discovers that they have kidnapped the hitchhiker's baby, but passes out before she can escape. Aaron wakes up at the Hewitt's house, surrounded by the entire family. Leatherface, his mom, Ludame, Hoyt, Monty, and Jedediah. Ludame explains to Aaron that Leatherface was tormented his whole life because of a skin disease that left his face disfigured, and she felt that no one cared for her family besides themselves. Aaron is taken to the basement where she finds Andy and kills him to end his suffering. Afterwards, she finds Morgan handcuffed in a bathtub. Jedediah, who does not agree with his family's actions, leads them out of the house and distracts Leatherface long enough for them to escape. Aaron and Morgan find an abandoned shack in the woods and barricade themselves inside. Leatherface breaks in and discovers Aaron, but Morgan attacks Leatherface, who hangs him from a chandelier by his handcuffs and cuts through his groin with the chainsaw. Aaron escapes into the woods with Leatherface in tow. She finds a slaughterhouse and attacks Leatherface with a meat cleaver, severing his right arm. Aaron runs outside and flags down a trucker, whom she tries to convince to drive away from the Hewitt house, but she stops to find help at the eatery. While the family is distracted by the trucker, Aaron sneaks the baby out of the eatery and places her in the sheriff's car. Aaron hotwires the car and Hoyt tries to stop her, but she runs him over repeatedly until he is dead. That, that's a pretty badass sequence, I must say. Leatherface uh, suddenly appears in the road and slashes the car with his chainsaw, but Aaron manages to escape with the baby, and he watches in frustration as she drives away. Two days later, two investigating officers are killed by Leatherface while doing a crime scene investigation of the Hewitt house, and the narrator states that the case still remains open. So that is our uh, synopsis of the 2003 remake. And if you're familiar with the original 1974 film, one of the ways that this is really easy to use this film to frame this discussion, not including what I kind of spelled out before, is that it kind of follows a lot of the same plot beats. You know, uh, you've got your van full of kids uh, that are making their way through Texas uh, for, I mean, for different reasons. And they come across a hitchhiker that, you know, begins to get them in the uh, web of the Hewitt, or if you're watching the original film, the Sawyer family. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's the plot. So let's talk a little bit about Leatherface and disability, because in this film, it's explicitly, with words, explained that Leatherface has a disability. Now, one of the things that's really interesting that the, uh, uh, the Wikipedia synopsis, and again, I told you, the, the synopsis never does you dirty at all, and it came through in spades this time around. If I am recalling the film, and I just watched it um, a day uh, ago, again, it's not Luda May, 
that explains the disability element first. It's actually uh, the tea lady. So the lady um, that's in the trailer that Aaron seeks refuge from Leatherface. She, uh, when Aaron is explaining, you know, Leatherface and who he is, uh, the tea lady, you know, explains, oh, well, that's Thomas Hewitt, and he's such a sweet boy, and, you know, he has this disease that, um, you know, does horrible things to his skin, he's such a sweet boy, such a sweet, sweet boy, and he was so tormented growing up, and, um, you know, did you get a look at his face, because you would understand, so, it's really, the, I think, the tea lady that lays that all out, but, of course, Luna May has her, her bit as well, so, we are given a very specific, uh, condition for Leatherface, one of the things that makes the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake unique is that unlike the others, this one got its due. This one got a, a prequel and a sequel on the tale of it. So, uh, you know, it was very successful upon release. And uh, the follow-up to this film, the prequel Texas Chainsaw Massacre the beginning, uh our opening scene is the birth of Thomas Hewitt, Motherface. Uh, it's a pretty traumatic event. Uh, he's born premature. His mom's working in the slaughterhouse. We get glimpses of him. We see some uh, abnormalities in his face. And he's thrown out in the trash and found by Luda May. So... Uh, the disability element is really hit on. Um, but again, one thing that's interesting is I think when the tea lady is talking about uh, the condition, I think she says that it, you know, it started when he was uh, a slightly older kid, um, I think around eight. Uh, so that wouldn't necessarily connect with what we have unless, you know, it got worse at that point, which is completely feasible. So, we get all of the bits that we need to establish that um, as part of the character. But let's talk about how this plays out within the film. So, Leatherface is a person that is afflicted with this disease. And as part of, I, I guess, a self-accommodation, is he creates masks um, made out of the flesh of others to put on his face, to hide, um, kind of the, the skin disease and, you know, to perhaps, uh, feel normal, um, in presentation. We have his family around him, uh, that is supportive and, uh, you know, facilitates this accommodation. Um, one thing that isn't hit on in this film, I think it comes in a bit more pointedly uh, uh, in the original series, but not necessarily in the remake, is the idea of cannibalism. Uh, you know, the family eating their victims, and that's not really uh, tied into this franchise, um, this continuity, I should say. Um, so, you know, if you're going to apply this to the original series, which one can do. You can go back and watch the original uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with this idea of Leatherface having this condition. 
and it plays um, fine. And I, it's kind of my preferred my preferred viewing of it. But uh, you know, it then creates kind of this context of uh, the family uh, helping Leatherface do this, and the cannibalism is really you know not just we need to eat, but also as kind of a way to, you know, waste not, want not. He's gonna, you know, he needs the skin, so we'll make use of the rest. Um, so, but again, that's not something that's necessarily uh, really driven uh, home in the remake continuity. So we have Leatherface uh, you know, giving, uh, you know, making these masks, uh, as kind of an accommodation for his disability. We have the family element there, uh, being support. Now, one of the things that I mentioned about Jason is this, uh, the idea, the stereotype, the trope of the character with a disability, particularly, that with an intellectual or developmental disability, not having uh, the capacity to manage emotional outbursts or kind of deal with emotions in healthy ways. So it leads to outbursts um, and sometimes some violent tendencies. And um, this uh, plays out here, but in kind of a different way. So, same coin, but the flip side are uh, is this trope or the stereotype of, you know, uh, characters with disabilities, individuals with disabilities, being angry about their condition, being angry about how they've been treated as a result, and wanting other people to kind of pay because of that. Um, you know, they've been bullied and they want to hurt those that have hurt them and often in really brutal ways and that's kind of what's at play with Leatherface you know we explicitly learn that he was kind of bullied as a kid because of his condition and so you know he's now gone to these lengths um to not only accommodate himself uh in that physical way but to lash out at others so you know, again, it's not an ideal representation, but um, that's really what it's kind of hitting at. And it's really interesting to see in juxtaposition to what we saw in Friday the 13th. Also, while we're talking about kind of the juxtaposition between the two franchises, I'll also mention the idea of family. Uh, you know, obviously in the original Friday the 13th, you have Pamela Voorhees, Mom of the Year, Mom of the Decade mom of the two decades um, because we know it happened over a course of 22 years um, from Jason's uh, supposed drowning to uh, the massacre at Camp Crystal Lake. Um, we have Pamela Voorhees, but again, there's not other family members mentioned. We get a little bit into that in um, uh, Jason Goes to Hell, but we are not going to hell um, and talking about that because it's just not 
well done. Um, but one thing in both the original uh, kind of world of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as well as in the remake uh, continuity, family is everything um, to Leatherface and kind of his his brood. Um, you know, the family uh, is very close-knit. Um, they work together as a unit. You know, uh, we see the sacrifices that uh, the family will make uh, to support uh, Thomas and how they support each other in brutality. So it's it's kind of an interesting idea there where Leatherface has this uh, big family support system. You know, after mom is killed for Jason, he doesn't have anyone. He doesn't get a sidekick. He doesn't have a friend. He doesn't have other family members that come uh, to his aid in any uh, manner. He's riding solo. And, um, you know, not only does Leatherface have his family, but the community around him. Uh, you know, again, mentioning the tea lady. I don't think that... Um, I don't think that Tea Lady and Henrietta are part of the family. I think they're family friends. and But it speaks to that small town community uh, kind of being there in support of Leatherface. You know, and to me, that kind of speaks to my experience. I grew up in a rural farm community uh, in Iowa. Uh, actually, around a lot of farms, around... Hog confinements. I worked in some hog confinements during the summers growing up. Uh, so, you know, this idea of a small community, farm community, um, is something really relatable to my experience. You know, also in rural areas, those supports, those community supports and services that I mentioned, you know, not available to uh, Jason and Pamela Voorhees when Jason was growing up because of the time you know we still have a bit of that because again this film takes place in the 70s um but you know the there's kind of a community stopgap the community will come together to help uh get supports in place to make sure that that uh, individual with a disability um that family has the support that they need um so uh, you know leatherface has all of that in place and uh jason doesn't have any of that so it's all very interesting to think about for sure so with that i think uh that's gonna that's gonna be where we stop for uh, our discussion on Texas Chainsaw Massacre and our discussion of Friday the 13th uh, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Jason and Leatherface all kind of from the perspective of disability. So thank you for listening, for being here. It truly means the world to me. Um, getting into this episode, I 
was so excited and so nervous because I love these two franchises so, so, so much. I love Leatherface and I love Jason. And the, um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you sit down and you watch these movies for the 10th time, the 100th time, and you take away something new about them. And the ability to sit down and, you know, put some of those ideas uh, out there uh, to vocalize them. Uh, so grateful for that opportunity because, you know, in just talking and speaking some of this out loud, uh, it you gain sometimes a new uh, thought, a new bit of understanding. And it can make going back to those films uh, even more uh, rewarding because you keep, uh, you keep finding meaning and finding connects and finding things that are really, really great or things that you're like, oh, that's not so great. And I need to remain kind of critical about this in this film and in others. And I hope that this conversation uh, does a little bit of that for you. Um, that's kind of, kind of why I wanted to do the podcast. This podcast is a very proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream Network. If you haven't checked out Anatomy of a Scream, please, please, please get on it. There are some amazing things happening there. Uh, amazing, amazing shows dropping on the reg. I'm currently obsessed with Let the Bodies Hit the Dance Floor just wonderful content. If you have enjoyed listening to me, you're going to love pretty much everything that's over there. So uh, please be sure to check them out. Just wonderful folks doing some wonderful stuff over there. Um, It's fantastic. And while you're at it, you know, I do have to make my ask of you to do all of the fun uh, podcasty bits of subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Rate and review. Um, Those are things that help folks discover me. I'm a new kid on the block and any bit helps. I'll tell you that. And one thing is with the reviews, you know, I love hearing feedback But it's, uh, you know, something that I also want to be able to share uh, in future episodes as reviews come in. So, you know, write that review and I'll be sharing some in episodes. And so you may get a shout out, which is pretty, pretty fun. So uh, if you want to reach out to me, uh, you can find me on the socials. I am Nicole in DC on Twitter. You can also drop me a line via email at Bodies of horror at gmail.com. Until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.